Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, lively, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is active right at the heart of that intersection of the human and the more-than-human worlds. Shelley Ostroff is an activist, a leadership consultant, a social architect, and a writer. But that list of occupations does not begin to cover the sheer breadth and depth of all that she does. Shelley is, amongst many other things, a founder of something called Seven Days of Rest, which is a global movement that gives people a week at the start of each year to focus on setting an intent for that year, collectively, together. Collective intent being so much more powerful than individual intent. And the intent for 2021 is rest and radical healing, which I think all of us are going to need. Shelley is also founder of Codes for a Healthy Earth, which offers a foundational whole system framework to support the entirety of the people of the world in working together across national, cultural and ideological boundaries for a radical systemic transformation of social and ecological regeneration. Think about that. It's huge. And her latest initiative, which is a part, an integral part of the Codes for Healthy Earth, is a proposal for a world water law, which would be absolutely transformational. She talks about that towards the end of the podcast. This is the kind of conversation that could have lasted hours. We could record an entire series just on the breadth and the depth of the things that Shelley is doing, how she got there, what it means, what the implications are for each of us. We limited this to an hour, partly because we had a glitch at the end and we had to go back and re-record some of it. So I apologise for the less-than-perfect recording. That is absolutely my responsibility. But Shelley is so inspiring and the content was so good, so deep, so useful that I wanted to keep all of it. We may, well... In fact, I hope we will go back for another podcast at some point. But in the meantime, people of the podcast, please welcome Shelley Ostroff. So, Shelley Ostroff, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast from sunny Israel. I'm, I'm guessing it is sunny in Israel because it always seems to be whenever I talk to my Israeli friends. It's always raining and cold here and they're always in t-shirts. Are you in a t-shirt? Well, actually, it rained last night, and it was a beautiful rain. When the second rain for the uh, for the season, so uh, we're we're aligned today in weather. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's been raining here for about a month. So. <laughs> okay, we yeah, we practice draining our water away, and I guess you practice collecting it. That's but right. we will talk about water later on. Unfortunately, we also practice wasting it, and like everywhere else in the world, also uh, contaminating it, owning it, and doing all sorts of other abuses to it, uh, which is part of what we'll speak about. Yes, we definitely will. Yes. We could go straight to that, but I think let's learn a little bit about Shelley Ostroff, who you are and how you came to be involved in so many transformative things. Can you give us a brief history of you and, and bring us up to the present day? Gosh, uh, thank you for the question. I'll try and do this briefly. Um, yeah, I think what led me to where we are today, where I am today, is an ongoing preoccupation and concern with uh, what humans are doing um, to each other and to the planet, this ongoing curiosity and pain at the suffering in the world, and uh, the deep research uh, into why we are doing what we're doing and what we can do about it. So my life is my adult life has been very much around healing, um, both on the very individual level. My first profession was as an art therapist. And then um, I uh, studied more about uh, group therapy. Um, I worked uh, at a, a psychiatric residential uh, treatment center and ran a um, place there for helping the youth move out and rehabilitate in the environment. And during that time, I learned a lot about management, about large groups, about organizations, psychology of organizations and communities, studying the unconscious and conscious of, of uh, human systems, uh, which to me was a fascinating discovery of how um, the narratives, the mythologies, the stories we tell each other impact each other and how we far less autonomous than we believe that we are because we're constantly projecting uh, and onto the field and being influenced by the field. So um, this deep interest in human psychology and into the way that humans relate to each other and to the environment continue to preoccupy me into research uh, both in the shamanic realms and also prompted me at some point in my life to do a doctorate in, um, I called it body, soul and role, a holistic approach to well-being in organizations. So I was really looking to understand what are the individual and systemic dynamics that impact health uh, and well-being and what are the holistic ways of supporting a transformation, a healing transformation at all levels, whether we're working with groups in conflict or communities. And then when uh, in 2012, I was working at the time as a very holistic, uh, both therapist, leadership consultant, traveling the world to teach and to learn about this holistic approach to working with, with health, I had a very powerful vision where I was uh, called to visit the white lions in South Africa. Mm. And that vision was so powerful that I, I had to act on it and uh, went to South Africa to visit Linda Tucker and her work with the white lions in rewilding the white lions uh, in, into their natural habitat, and uh, which is a, a, an incredible piece of work that she's done and met these extraordinary beings. And from that, I was taken into a deep inquiry and research and receiving visions and understandings of how nature organizes itself uh, in a very different way from how humans do. Mm. 
uh, which led me to really focus on what we are doing to the planet. Uh, so from a very human-centered perspective, I became much more aware of the limitations of this human-centered perspective and expanded my sensing into how does nature work and what can we learn from nature as to how we can organize ourselves as a species. So years of research, I became incredibly distressed by what I was learning about what was really going on, because while I had a sense of it beforehand, I started to learn about the facts on the ground, recognizing just how much we are, uh, the cruelty to animals, the devastation of, uh, of the uh, water, the climate, the forces behind it, politics behind it, the economy behind it, things that hadn't interested me very much beforehand. And I took a deep dive into this and beyond becoming very distressed and furious as to how can this possibly happen, I also became driven to see how to apply this holistic healing wisdom on the planetary level. And during that time, uh, I was also receiving a lot of visions as to initiatives that I was to lead. And uh, one of them was an event called Seven Days of Rest, which was an event that we are now doing every year at the beginning of the year to create a field of intention and consciousness and resonance for the healing of the planet and humanity for the first seven days of every year. And it's a global open event uh, which invites people to participate, to offer events, to participate in what they want to. The main thing is to take those seven days of recalibrating and creating a field of consciousness that inspires the rest of the year. Mm. And that's where I also met my partner, Jan Golding. I'd seen his work on the um, through the research I was doing. He was also a very whole system thinker. I invited him into the project of Seven Days of Rest, and together we made it happen. There were, in the first year, already people from 60, more than 60 countries participating, and it became clear it had to become an annual event for seven years. And then as Jan began to look at the architecture of the governance system that I was beginning to write about, and from his background in researching solutionaries from around the world, he recognized that it was holding a whole system approach that he hadn't seen that you know he could recognize as very important. And we, we joined forces, and together we created Codes for a Healthy Earth and are now working on uh, the world water law and on the creation of uh, this uh, architecture for a new way of organizing ourselves as a species, which I call eco-governance and uh, the technology for doing so, for, for working in a different way. That is so good. And there's so much I really want to talk about here. If we go back a little bit. So you said that we are constantly projecting onto the field and being influenced by the field and that we're far less autonomous than we think. So could you just let us know a little bit about what the field is hmm. and perhaps a bit of how it influences us in terms of us understanding our own agency at any point? So when I refer to the field, I'm referring to a field of consciousness of which we are all part. The idea that we are interconnected is becoming very recognized in the field where we talk more about our interconnection on a physical level. But for a long time, those that have been studying the group psychology have understood that it's also a collective field of consciousness of which we are part. And that collective field of consciousness 
you know, it has its its levels on the individual, the the family level, the group level, the organizational level, the national level, the cultural level, and also the planetary level as a human species, that we are all being impacted and impact this collective field of information of which we are part. And as such, as we grow up in our families uh, and in our cultures, we tend to take on specific roles that have been uh, in many ways influenced by the cultural norms and the cultural stories. And we have also learned stories about other cultures, about other genders, about other fields of influence. And we pick up a lot of these in, in our collective, in the way that we understand who we are in the world and how we engage in the world. These stories impact us. We can't be autonomous from them because they, uh, they're almost, we imbibe them on an unconscious level and often take these stories to be a reality. In that sense, and that's just one sense, we, we, where we are less autonomous than we think we are because we are in, inevitably influenced by the information that comes our way. And with growing awareness, we can have more choices, but nevertheless, our field of consciousness is only as broad as our awareness to that which is impacting it. So that's one aspect of how we, we are less autonomous. And these roles that we take up are often unconscious. And there's an enormous amount of work, both as individuals and as societies, that we can do to say, how are we activated in different situations to take up a specific role. So if I'm the youngest person in a specific group, or your oldest person, or a person of color, or a white person, so-called whites, whatever I represent in the field will naturally trigger uh, associations in the group that I'm in. And those projections onto me uh, um, will influence the way in which I engage with a group. So if there's an unconscious anticipation at, as the oldest person in, the, in a group, as the youngest person in a group, as the female in the group, as the male in the group, as the, as the um, person of a particular nationality, we, we anticipate that they're supposed to hold a specific role and we project our collective stereotypes onto them and that activates the person to actually take that role. And this happens both on an individual level as well as on a collective level. So for instance, right, uh, you know, the so-called right and the so-called left take on specific roles mm. that go way beyond their individual choice. They're, they're almost, they're a a collection, an expression of our stereotypes, of our culturalization, and so much more than that. So how do we step out of that? If we Now that we see it, if we see it, and we wish not to have to take on the roles that are projected onto us, or to project onto other people different roles, what can we do in and of ourselves to break that cycle? I think the first thing that I've uh, found most useful is to become aware of that cycle to learn the language of this uh, psychology of the collective and to be able to discern some of the mechanisms that we use in that and to, uh, for instance, projection is uh, stereotypes, generalizations. Um, these are all mechanisms that when they're identified, they have less hold on one. And then another way that we can also work with it is through self-awareness, through self-exploration to constantly ask ourselves, you know, how is the response that I gave? Does it feel to me to be a real reflection of, of my deepest being? Or is it something that I feel 
almost came out too quickly as a response and what is the impact of that response? And could I have had alternatives in how I respond to certain situations? So that process of ongoing reflection and becoming aware of how we tend to engage and the consequences of that engagement and to also explore other possibilities of seeing situations in new ways is an essential part of that awareness. Brilliant. Yes. So you said that with the ongoing reflection of how we engage and the consequences of that, we begin to see situations in new ways. And that takes me back to something you said earlier about your work when you went to connect with the White Lions. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know a little bit more about those. But you said that the inquiry that arose from your connections with them led to an expansion of your sense, of your senses of how does nature work. And I'm really, really interested at this moment, partly because that's what we're doing within Accidental Gods, is opening the gates of our perception, hmm. changing the nature of what sensing is so that we can connect more with the web of life, with the more than human world. So I'm really excited that your connection with the White Lions gave you that expanded sense. And I wondered if you could unpick that a little of what do expanded senses feel like? And then what did you learn as a result of having expanded your senses? You know, as I was saying before that, um, I had worked very much with people, and so I was—I I, was—I had developed a, a quite a deep sensitivity to people's dynamics and to listening to people through almost an embodied listening a resonance field that is created between one person and another, listening not only to the words, but to the behavior, to how what they would say, were saying was expressed and how it met me vibrationally. So there's a deep vibrational wisdom that I had already developed, but I had not lived in nature and I had not been connected very much to nature before this. Uh, there was a longing, but there wasn't much experience in nature. And then suddenly out of the blue to receive this powerful vision from the White Lions, who uh, I'd read the book uh, by Linda Tucker many years beforehand. And it was uh, in this vision that I was had a sense that I was being called there. And it was a very strong sense by the, um, Mandla, the White Lion, that uh, was the, the king there at the time. Um, he's now transitioned. Um, and that possibility that I could be receiving a message from another species was something that I'd read about, I knew about, but it had never, I'd never experienced it before. And I'd read about and knew people who were animal uh, communicators or who had been spoken to plants and learned about plants through communication. I had never developed these sensibilities before. But when I, after I'd been to the White Lions and spent a few days there, the um, environment was so pristine and powerful that. Um, there was a sense when I, I got there that this is a compass for me and that I have to learn something about it. And it opened up a, a, a portal to, um, to listening and to engaging more with uh, the essences of life. And interestingly enough, you know, I, I had invited nature to speak to me, but what happened was in deep meditation, uh, I would sense that uh, different consciousnesses were uh, were revealing themselves to me. Um, it wasn't even so much in direct contact with nature. It was in the uh, heartful, meditative 
connection to nature that nature began to speak to me about how it functions. Um, this may seem very abstract, but I think even the ref you know to, yeah, right. to begin with a reflection question is always useful. So, for instance, if you say, "Show me yourself," how do you know what? Uh, how do you organize? What is? How does nature manage its resources in such a vitalizing way? And what can we learn from that? Right. And from just being curious about that question and from listening to patterns. Um, I could see, you know, I would find myself traveling in my imagination into the body, into um, ecosystems, into the planetary ecosystems and say, well, you know, in nature, every part of the whole has exactly what it needs in order to thrive. And yet there is no hierarchical system. Yes. There's no one leader. It's an incredibly complex web of life. Even our physical human body is so complex, and yet each function knows exactly what to do. So how do we how do we translate that into something that we can learn from? And what I came up with was that nature works with one foundational code that does so much. And when we get that code right, when we understand that nature doesn't work by imposing leadership or rules or regulations, but instead by a life code, it opens up many many possibilities for thinking about how we can reprogram ourselves as humanity, because basically we are being programmed. Uh, we're being programmed by our cultures, we're being programmed by our leaders, whether they're ideological, political, economic, whichever it is. So how do we really mm. code, encode ourselves with the codes of life? And that's when I received this vision of the vitality code, which is what I refer to as that nature's code that ensures that each part of the whole receives precisely what it needs in order to manifest its unique function in service of the whole, to manifest its unique potential in service of the whole. And that organizing principle, that code, feels to me so profound as an organizing code for governance, for education, for media, for everything we do. Hmm. Yes. Yes. So is this the basis of the Earth Codes? That, that one vitality code. I would say that it was the first uh, code that really came to me as a code. And yes, it's, it's the foundation for how to rethink everything about what we do. Because if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to heal ourselves, we have to put that code in place. We have to start yeah. looking at how energy moves through the system, how humans are impacting the way energy moves through the systems, and how we can do that in a way that realigns with the, co the, the vitalizing codes of nature. So that one simple principle, you know, we, we, as human beings, we tend to complicate things quite a bit mm. and abstract them. And suddenly there was this simple organizing principle that can be related to on so many different levels and in every sphere of life. How does each part of the whole receive precisely what it needs to manifest its unique potential in service of the whole? And in that one sentence, I found everything. Yeah, okay. So it was the basis of the Earth Codes, but the, uh, what you what you call the Earth Codes, it's Codes for a Healthy Earth, um, which is a framework that uh, Jan and I initiated, and I can say more about that if um, yes, definitely. So so now would be a good time. Can we dive deep into the Codes for a Healthy Earth? What they are, 
how they arose, how they changed the understanding of systems thinking, because it sounds as if you have done that also, and that you've done it by bringing in the learning that you got from your deep meditative connections, which is which is so inspiring, I have to say. So yes, let's have a look at the Codes for a Healthy Earth. Thank you. So Codes for a Healthy Earth, one of the questions that uh, Jan and I were preoccupied with was um, the fact that there's so much confusion in the system, there's so much disinformation in the system, there's so much limitations in, uh, in how we are viewing the world because we, we're conditioned to think in very fragmented and siloed ways about ourselves, our place in the world, uh, about issues. And um, we were recognizing that there are so many people in the world that are working on extraordinary solutions, but that we weren't all seeing the same thing and that there isn't a clear map, mm -hmm. a clear strategy, a clear understanding that we're all, a clear compass. So we are all working as best as we can to fix what we can, to serve what we can. The question that came to me was, what do citizens around the world need to know in order to take up our roles as healthy citizens for a healthy planet and to transform the way we organize ourselves? And we saw this as an initial offering to the global movement of change makers, is if we could just put together in a coherent way a, a collective compass with a shared vision, shared organizing principles, shared values, citizen-led self-organization, it would be a good start to begin to unite all of these diverse groups around the world. And through the research that I'd done and through the insights that I'd received, I realized that our current language, our current political, economic, ideological language often is a language that goes against life. Mm. It is a language that is disconnected from life. It puts at the forefront of our attention all sorts of human concepts of hierarchy and privilege and, and separateness. And that causes us in turn to live in a place of uh, imbalanced relationships and an obsession with power over rather than really understanding the deep interconnected nature of our physical, emotional, spiritual consciousness reality. So the codes for a healthy earth, the main framework is to put whole system health at the center of governance. So to start with thinking, rethinking how we organize a system, our sense was, my sense is that we need to question everything. We have to go to the source of the stories that we're telling ourselves and ask, for instance, the question, what is the purpose of governance? Because from the purpose, everything else is derived. And today, I don't think we really ask ourselves, what is the purpose of governance? And if we give ourselves answers, it's you know somehow to create order in society, to represent the um, humans in the system, to manage the country, to manage resources. But these concepts are very disconnected from life. Mm. And so... One of the first things I had done a few years ago when I was becoming so despondent about the world, I wrote an article called Deconstructing Democracy, where I understood that uh, where we are today is a direct outcome of the way in which we govern ourselves, whether it's democracy or all the other forms of governance on the, on the planet. They are all human-centered, and they all have very, very um, strong dangers in them and lead to this culture of exploitation. So part of the first piece of 
transforming how we relate to governance is to ask the question and the answer that the codes gives to what is the purpose of governance, the only legitimate purpose of governance is to protect and cultivate the health and vitality of the planet and all its inhabitants for generations to come. And it seems self-obvious, but it's so far from the way that we're living our life. And if we can just contemplate that purpose of governance for, us, for a moment, we recognize that if we can agree on that purpose, we're already taking a big step in moving towards reorienting our priorities and how we, um, how we think about governance. Yes. So from the purpose, you know, it means that every decision puts the health of the whole for future generations at the center, the key discerning principle for all our decisions. It means that when we're thinking about decision-making and who's in the room to make those decisions, it can't just be humans and certainly can't just be certain humans. Mm -hmm. We have to represent all stakeholders over whom our decisions have an influence in the decision-making process. So we need, we need those who speak for the trees, who speak for the water, who speak for the animals, who speak for the climate, who speak for birds, who speak for all, you know, for all different uh, aspects of our web of life and of the specific ecosystems of which we are part. Because until we actually recognize these as consciousnesses, as stakeholders that are impacted, we will be living in a way that... Um, that exploits these, you know, these aspects that doesn't understand them and that really puts our own immediate human needs or fabricated needs at, uh, at the center of our attention. So can I interrupt and ask a question there? Mm. And because this sounds so clear and so obvious and once you've articulated it, there is no going back really. Mm. But in the construction of governance systems that give voice to all of the web of life, we're going to have to train people to not be contaminated by the field. Our earlier conversation of we don't have as much agency as we think we have mm -hmm. um, because we are impacted by our projections, the projections onto us and the projections we make. So if we are going to achieve this, I'm guessing you've got their way ahead of me, of how do we raise the people or train the people or give the people the space to be able to give clean, clear voice to all of the aspects of the web of life that need to have a voice in the governance system? So the process for moving towards eco-governance, towards a more natural, I would say, and vitalizing form of governance is a whole system transformation process and it has to come from everywhere simultaneously. So education, media, uh, all of this needs to be very, very front and center in the governance. Because basically, when you say that the only purpose of governance is to protect and cultivate the health and vitality of the planet and all its inhabitants for generations to come, this means that every aspect of governance, education, media, uh, agriculture, all of these also have to have be derived from and serve that same purpose. So the idea is that Yes, we need to find frameworks for governing that way, but it does involve a holistic whole system intervention that allows humanity and all the resources that we have who, already, you know, who are already working in this way to uh, take 
front and center as, and for those, uh, the indigenous people, the regenerative ecosystem healers, the trauma healers, all of these people need to be in the center stage discerning what are the best practices together. So the concept of eco-governance, it's not that we replace our similar structures of governance today with people with other people in that same kind of structure. It's a very, very different concept of uh, how to create distributive, uh, distributive government through uh, um, councils, uh, stewardship and expertise councils and issue-based councils around all those issues that are challenging for us today and find ways to discern best practices and information uh, rather than being subject to any one leader's authority because he has a formal role, never mind what his capacity is for being able to understand the complexities. So it's really about using the resources, the inspiration, the wisdom, the knowledge in the system to be able to do it. And all the change makers that are in the system, this is not a centralized process. You know, eco-governance does not have one leader. The beauty about the codes is that the codes lead. In nature, there isn't a leader. The codes lead. Now, we have kind of contaminated our codes. We've interrupted our natural codes with all sorts of layers of disconnection and concepts that disconnect us from our basic instinct, intuition, uh, capacity for engaging in in whole system sense-making ways. Even though as as children, we probably knew a lot more about how to engage with all that was around us. And over the years, we've We've created these disconnects to the point where many of us are walking around, you know, with with tablets in front of our eyes the whole time and and so disconnected. So all of these things have to be dealt with simultaneously. And, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I do trust the answers in the field. And where I feel like we're contributing at the moment to most is being able to sense into the meta principles that can bring all of these different forces for regeneration uh, together in a good way and amplify their voice, their efficiency, and their capacity by seeing where it all fits into the collective puzzle. So it's, it's almost like in order to heal the system, we have to see the system. And in order to see the system, we need to give voice to the different parts of the system. And so there is a concept of an online... A community platform where we can gather all of these different voices and create discerning councils. And these councils don't necessarily have any authority or any status. They're service. They're in service of saying, how do we discern the best information for the whole? And then, you know, the way that this shift towards eco-governance is going to happen is a mystery to me. But as the, as we dive deeper into the rabbit hole and we see what's going on in the world today and we see that we're on the verge, we're at a, of a choice point. It's a bifurcation moment where we can either surrender to the uh, those forces that are really working to try and control the resources of the planet for the benefit of a few, or we can unite those that are ready for it, around a shared vision for a thriving world for all of life. And in doing so, the codes provide a a wonderful foundation for holding in mind and for um, offering certain certain pieces that we can collectively focus on. So that's part of it. And then, you know, the vision for the world water law came. 
And when the vision for the world water law came, I began to see how uh, these um, ideas that are emerging in the collective consciousness at the moment, like a world water law, are showing the way forward in the most extraordinarily creative, holistic uh, healing ways because they can actually, through one idea, you can create a groundswell, a global movement because the idea, the time of the idea has arrived. It's such an obvious idea. You know, sometimes I just feel like I've, something has been unveiled and I'm stating the obvious. And can you tell us what the world water law is? Yes, absolutely. And so when you, when you are able to name an, an obvious idea that somehow has been hidden from us for so long, it catalyzes a lot of energy around it. So the same way that I said to you, you know, around what is the purpose of governance, you know, it's, it's a simple idea and yet it makes so much sense. It's been around forever. It's not original. It's, you know, the, the indigenous wisdom and there were, you know, I think it was the Iroquois uh, who are famous for talking about it. We have to govern for the next seven generations. Yes. So the world water law this year when COVID broke out, uh, I became very aware that something was shifting in the global field that I keep talking about, uh, that there was a new awareness about our fundamental interconnectedness with each other and with all of life. There was a new way of putting health at the center of our consciousness. Hmm. Um, and there was also a, a strong awareness that this uh, pandemic was catalyzing radical changes in many things that we had taken for granted and not always in a good direction because the mechanisms of control were in many ways using uh, the pandemic as a way of tightening the grip on security, on information, on many other things. And at the same time, there was this opening because people were talking about a re reboot of the system. Many people have lost their jobs. Many people, the economy is changing. Many of the professions we thought were self-obvious are not so self-obvious anymore. So this unique opportunity for this incredible crisis was also in some ways an opportunity to bring forth a whole system healing idea, which has really inspired me so much to, to act in the world. And so what I saw was uh, the vision of a world water law. And what came to me was that in this state of immense fragmentation and conflict and exploitation and confusion uh, in the world. There's one thing that can unify us. There's one thing that we can all agree on, and that is that we all need water. Mm. You know, we, we all have that same shared need. And, you know, fundamentally, we all are water. You know, people say that we're at 50 to 70% water on a molecular level. Apparently, we're more than that. So here we are, you know, focusing on differences in race and gender and nationality and color as things that separate us. And we're 50 to, you know, 75, if not 99% water. So <laughs> water is the source, the sustenance, the medicine for all of life. And we were becoming more and more aware of the uh importance of water in this healing process of COVID. You know, it's about, you, you have to be very, um, you have to drink a lot, you have to wash yourself, wash a lot. And we also understand just how water travels from one place to another. The moisture in our bodies travels, we're kind of, the moisture in the sky travels. So water does not have, you know, it doesn't have boundaries. Hmm. Yes. So we're heading towards the end of our time. We will definitely take up this conversation again and go more deeply because there are so many areas that are so relevant to 
all that you're doing and all that we're trying to do with Accidental Gods. But I'd like towards the end to go through what the world water laws, the component parts are, so that we can pick up from that when we meet again. So can you tell us the four parts? Sure. So the actual proposal for the world water law has four main principles. The first one, the first principle, is to immediately ensure the restoration of all our planetary waters, watersheds, water sources, all of the planetary water bodies. The second principle is to ensure the restoration of the planetary water cycle. So it's not enough just to restore the watersheds. We also have to restore the entire climate. And to restore the climate, we have to restore the ecosystems that are an essential part of regulating the climate and the planetary water cycle in a way that is life-enhancing. The third piece is to make sure, to ensure that all humans and animals have guaranteed access to natural uncontaminated water. So when I say all humans and animals have access, um, what I'm saying is that it's not enough to focus on humans having water Hmm. because um, the fact is that there are many uh, investments now in extractive technologies that are almost accepting uh, the fact that humans pollute the water and are uh, contaminating and owning and cause, uh, and and interrupting the water cycle. So all we need to do is create technologies for humanity to have access to water. But this mm. denies the reality that it's not only humans that need water. It's animals. It's trees. It's plants. It's the entire ecosystem. And beyond the uh, issue of real compassion, that all humans and animals need guaranteed access, as is the law of nature. Water provides for all. This is the original law of water. And so when humans interfered with this law of water that that provides enough for all uh, and began to own water and tamper with it and contaminate it, we have actually violated the source of life, that source intelligence. And um, I'm not sure if people are really aware of to the extent to which all our planetary waters are threatened at this moment through contamination, dams, etc. So this understanding that we all actually have to look after our own water sources yeah. on behalf of the whole, that we water does not have uh, any boundaries. Um, the water from one place moves very quickly to another place. So when we contaminate water, in one place, it can contaminate an entire ecosystem. The waters from Fukushima yeah. are spreading rapidly throughout the planet. So this focus of nations and corporations and communities to own water sources is a contradiction uh, with the laws of nature itself. Mm. So when we talk about guaranteed access of all humans and animals to water beyond the compassion aspect of it, there is this understanding that the entire web of life is part of the water cycle. And so for the water cycle to be intact and for us to have access to this fundamental need that we use in so many different ways every day and take for granted, the entire planetary system has to be healthy and intact. And it starts with the quality of our water. So 
um, just putting this in as, a, uh, as an additional piece, is when you contaminate water, when you undermine the capacity of humanity and animals and the ecosystems to have access to water, you set in place a domino effect which then undermines all other aspects of life from agriculture to education to um, health to the economy. It undermines every aspect of life. And similarly, when we come together to heal our planetary waters, the cascading effect of this one intervention on all aspects of life is infinite because when you begin with water, when we come together around the source of water, when we collectively invest our energies and focus on water, all of life benefits. And ultimately, we are activating this whole system healing intervention through tapping at source and working with a source both of where we have tampered with and interfered with our health and both with where it can be healed. So it's restoring right relationship with water will then help us to learn about interconnectedness. It will help us to learn about life. So the education piece that is implicit in the world water law, because in order to do this, we have to learn about water. And in learning about water, we actually learn uh, about Uh, about the entire life cycle. And interestingly enough, it also relates to another question that you brought up earlier around consciousness, because water has a very powerful consciousness, and many are already studying it. And when we engage with the consciousness of water and we look at how water informs and nourishes and cleanses all of life, we can learn so much about life itself and about ourselves as water beings. And the fourth principle of the world water law is that everybody is held accountable for their impact on water everywhere. So much of the threats to water exist because there is no accountability in the system. And uh, there is this strange concept that people who have power and money are allowed to do what they want with the water sources of the planet, with a source of life. And uh, this is enabled through um, clearly, you know, all sorts of laws and regulations that um, are put into a system which is disconnected from life. And it's enabled by the lack of accountability Hmm. uh, and the lack of transparency around it. So when we all understand that rather than asking for rights to water alone, we actually work with our responsibility to water, that every watershed needs stewards who are responsible for the quality of that water on behalf of the whole, because the quality of these watersheds and water bodies impacts the whole. So rather than water being considered to be owned by locals or owned by corporations, those who are stewarding those water sources, it's not about rights to the water only, it's about the responsibility to maintaining the integrity of the water and that water body on behalf of the health of the whole. Right. So those are the four principles and together it makes a, it, it really activates a very holistic intervention, helping us focus on the diverse areas that need to be focused on for the healing uh, that we so desperately need at this time. Yes, yes, because if we, I'm, I'm understanding much more as you're speaking of it, the that this will be foundational to a whole new way of being. Right. It is impossible to continue the current system, and, and hold to these laws. So my understanding is that 2021, your intent is that that's the year of the world water law. Have you got people around the world who are going to try and? create this within the legislatures that exist? Or are we creating 
separate systems that will then create a movement towards this? So, yes, there are people around the world who are already involved. The idea for the World Water Year came again to say, how do we best offer this concept to the system? And yes, you're absolutely right when you say, you know, it changes everything. Because this one water law as a primary law, the source law, means that every other law has to be in alignment with this. So it, you know, in codes for a healthy earth, in this whole system framework, one of the principles is that we need to delegitimize any law that goes against life or enables us to go against life and legitimize only those laws that are in service of life. And this is an example, a primary example of such a law that is in service of life. So how do we get the world water law activated? Uh, how, do we, how do we enact it? And that, that really is a, a very good question, especially within a context where our political and legal systems are almost built to defend against this kind of radical common sense law that helps us realize just how disconnected from nature and from health we are. Um, you know, it's a bureaucratic, technocratic uh, agenda-based, profit-based, power-based system that is invested in controlling uh, resources rather than enabling uh, them to be uh, maintained and their availability for all. Mm. So um, there are no existing channels to ensure that the world water law is, you know, to put the world water law through. If you go to an individual government or to the United Nations or to none of them are able to put this through in a in a smooth and uh, uncompromising way. Okay. So we have to be creative about it. Um, because that doesn't exist doesn't mean that we can't implement the world water law. Humanity is incredibly creative and we've managed to do many things. It's about bringing our collective creative resources together to figure out how to make this common sense law a global reality. And our belief is that when enough human beings from diverse uh, cultures all of, uh, from all over the world come together to put our heads to this, we can do it. There's an enormous citizen-led process going on at the moment where citizens across the world are rising to say no to what is and are now taking also the initiatives as to saying, what you know, what are the alternatives? Because, as I said at the beginning, the world water law is something that can unite all of humanity around one particular area of focus. The idea that citizens from all different sectors and walks of life and cultures and all over the world rise simultaneously with their diverse expertise to ask the question, how do we make this happen, is what is going to make it happen. In other words, there isn't a pre-existing answer for this. It's a yeah. uh, infrastructure that invites the creativity of all. We don't see ourselves as, as leading this. There's so many amazing people who are already doing this incredible leadership around water across the world and so many, uh, you know, so many amazing uh, initiatives. What we are leading or offering here is the support. And the support means initiating some processes that can support this collective process, this collective journey. Uh, So World Water Year is an idea that we are launching, which is to say, let's take a year to create momentum around building citizen-led global focus around this question, how do we implement the law globally? And uh, that this process of 
building momentum over a year where all are invited in to bring their particular offerings and where people can begin to see the whole and find creative ideas of connecting the dots um, will work not only towards implementing the uh, the creative ideas for transforming the way in which we organize ourselves as a species and implementing such a radical, you know, uh, new way of uh, of thinking about justice and law, it will also, the, the byproducts, the secondary benefits of working towards the world water law are infinite because, you know, it's bringing awareness uh, to health, to life, to water, to interconnectedness, to in every sector to all the existing solutions in whether it be in harvesting water or in uh, water-friendly agriculture, in water-friendly economies. All of this can be in the same platform and that focused energy, that ability to bring everybody together with a common vision, common goal, you know, it's almost unheard of in, you know, that humanity can all unite around one thing. Yeah. And I, I believe that much of humanity can unite around this, yeah. understanding that there are also going to be a lot of challenges and resistances in the field. So, for instance, people whose job depends on a job that actually does impact water negatively will be under incredible stress between choosing, yes. you know, to support the world water law or, you know, how, do they, how, do, how does one live in integrity in a job that they suddenly, you know, understand is having this impact on water. So there needs to be also these whole system transition processes that support, you know, from the most pragmatic ways of finding ways to support people in transitioning to healthier jobs, in supporting organizations to transition to more water-friendly, to water-friendly practices. These kinds of initiatives can be developed by people in the system who are called to do so on behalf of the whole. And in this way, we each hold our different offerings, whether it's the water ceremonies or the water solutions or the political activism. We can all do our part and find friends all over the world who are working similarly and come together, cross all our differences in order to uh, activate this radical and exponential whole system healing through this one organizing principle. That is amazing and a brilliant, brilliant place to stop. So I will put a link in the show notes to the websites with all of the details of the world water law. And we have time after this goes out before 2021 kicks off for people to really have a good look at those and decide how they, in their communities, singly and collectively, can begin to work towards this. Because you're right, it it will create exponential change if we can if we can gain enough traction exactly and get people to really buy into it right that's fantastic thank you so so much for your time and for the integrity of everything that you said oh thank you manda so that's it for another week huge thanks to shelley for the astonishing depth and breadth of her vision I will put links in the show notes to all of her initiatives, so please do go and visit them there. Explore the codes for healthy earth. See what you can do to engage with the world water law. We are at a time of such transformation, and we have to begin to reorient our lives towards the vitality and flourishing of the whole web of life. And these initiatives are amongst the most coherent set of responses that I've come across that arise from the core understanding that we need to go back to the earth, that we need to learn how to listen to the whole web of life, to ask the questions that matter and hear clear, constructive, coherent 
answers. And yes, that is familiar, because that is what Accidental Gods is all about. So I really like the connectivity of this. Anyway, links are in the show notes. Go and explore. What else is life for but transforming the world so that future generations of all life can have a home in which they can flourish? That's not intended to be a rhetorical question. So we'll be back next week. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the absolutely stellar sound production stitching together the glitches that I seem to be able to create. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, we're at accidentalgods.life. You get the show notes there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and the Accidental Gods membership program, which is our version of a structured training that will give you everything you need so that you can ask the questions that really matter of the web of life and hear clear, constructive, coherent answers. So head off and have a look. And if you know of anybody else who wants to be part of this generative dance towards a more flourishing world for future generations, please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.